This week on Life and Faith. What are you seeking? What is your life for? And I'm trying to get this question back into the heart of our spiritual and theological reflection, whether or not you believe in God. We get compassion fatigue because the news only actually brings to us the terrible things. So we lose perspective. Wow, he's going to have this as a lifelong thing. I cannot tell you the number of old people that I'm talking with who are surprised by the reality of death. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I want to start by quoting a character from a novel by the American writer Willa Cather, who says this, The world is little, people are little, human life is little. There is only one big thing, desire. Desire is, as we're going to hear on today's episode, a constant feature of our lives, every single one of us. But it's something we rarely talk about directly. It's linked to sex and love, yes, but also food and drink, comfort and ambition, money, advertising, power, consumption, and therefore ecology as well, and even, or perhaps especially, God and religion. Today on Life and Faith, we bring in the big guns. We've spoken with Professor Sarah Coakley before for our documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. She's taught at Oxford, Harvard and Cambridge She's also an Anglican priest, and more recently, she has a research position remotely with the ACU, the Australian Catholic University. She's a philosopher of religion and a theologian, and describes herself as living on the borderlands between secular and church culture. In this conversation, she covers pornography, celibacy, dieting, the body, and the human condition. Now, you need to be pretty switched on for this one. These are some deep waters but we think you'll find the dive worthwhile. Natasha Moore brings you this interview. I mostly want to talk to you about a book you published a few years ago, which has the wonderful title, The New Asceticism, Sexuality, Gender and the Quest for God. There's a lot of loaded terms in there for one title, asceticism, sexuality, gender, I mean God even. I wonder what kinds of things, whether looking around at the culture or whether personal experiences for you, what kinds of things prompted you to write on this tangle of topics? Well, um, a key theme in my other writings is that of desire, which I see as a, a central human phenomenon. In fact, as a theologian, I would say desire actually is a basic human yearning capacity. We see desire in the newborn baby um, for physical and psychological needs. We see desire in the dying person, even if they've lost the capacity for speech. We see desire in people who are very severely brain damaged or, or physically damaged. Desire is always there to the from the moment of birth to the last gasp of our breath. And what's so fascinating about it is that it moves between physiological need and psychic or, or spiritual or intellectual longing. And hence, for that reason, it's been very interestingly thematized in the history of philosophy, particularly in the Platonic tradition, and then as Christianity took on that Platonic tradition. And the reason I'm interested in it afresh today is that it seems to me that in Anglo-American and Antipodean postmodern culture, 
sexual desire has come to have an almost obsessive role of interest in our lives. We sort of forget that this hasn't always necessarily been the case. But if you write a book on desire these days, the assumption is that it's on sex. This is a kind of post-Freudian presumption. We almost think that's what the word means, yes. sexual desire. Um, but actually, the idea that the notion of desire might gather together all our longings, whether it be for the most basic needs of food and drink and comfort, right through to desires for sex, power, influence, uh, wealth, um, right up to, and including, if you think this is important as I do, a fundamental longing for God, then a very interesting ethical dilemma, spiritual dilemma is put before us, because it's really that of thinking, well, what is my life about fundamentally? What do I most long for? What really matters? And how do I adjudicate between these competing desires, which are constantly being, uh, as it were, whipped up, exacerbated, trailed before me um, through contemporary advertising, um, the influence of the World Wide Web, pornography, and other means of eliciting longings in the human psyche, many of which, of course, are connected to capitalist making of money, if you think about it. So that's my interest. My interest is in the human condition as a theologian. And my interest in, is in uh, how contemporary culture in what used to be called the first world has become extraordinarily focused on a certain set of desires, apparently to the um, undermining or loss of interest in other desires. This, of course, is becoming critical now as we start to focus on ecological questions, because if we can't get a longing for the flourishing of our um, ecological world up to the top of the list, then we're not going to be able to survive as a human race. So the sorting of desires, even for those in the secular world, is now becoming, I think, a crucial aspect of political and economic and human life. And for those of us who believe in God, it can't be separated from an even more fundamental longing for union with God, which is what I want to talk about ultimately in this realm. Well, you've convinced me that your book is about everything <laughs> <laughs> that concerns us. Um, I'm interested in you know, what specifically is going on, you know, some of those things you point to within our particular cultural moment, time mm. and place. You talk about the paradoxes that are at play in kind of a contemporary Western understanding of sex and desire and the body. Can you kind of unpack what that means? What do you find paradoxical about our culture's approach to this stuff? Well, I think there are several things, but one that immediately comes to mind is that there is often a sort of sub-Freudian presumption. I say sub-Freudian because this isn't actually what Freud said. <laughs> and it's a major part of this book to unpick how odd it is that the Freudianism of the um, glossy magazine that we read when we're having our hair done is, um, is actually very different from Freud himself. But there is a presumption in our culture that we all need to be sexually active 
preferably as much as possible all the time up to our death, and that um, this is a good in itself. And if we're not, then um, there's something wrong with us. And that this causes enormous anxiety for people who are not wishing to be celibate, but are. As we know, this can cause a great deal of violence. It causes great difficulties in marriages, when there may be periods in a long marriage, when not all both partners can be equally satisfied for lots of different reasons. And so that we have a kind of idol here in our popular imagination about sexuality. And it's paradoxical because it then goes along with a tremendous presumption that pornographic imagery, for instance, is a kind of right. And that we, we hear, for instance, that, you know, 90% of people Women as well as men now use pornography regularly. And yet we also have an incredible prurience against certain kinds of sexual desire, which are rightly prohibited, paedophile desire. So our culture is constantly whipping up dark longings in us and presuming that the elicitation of sexual response is, is a good and a right And at the same time, there is not really a very clear moral sensibility about how to um, adjudicate what's going on here if this kind of elicitation of desire is uh, creating, for instance, violent or objectifying views of other people and tips over rather regularly into abusive behaviours of various sorts. So I think we are in a great muddle in the Western world at the moment in this area. But the other paradox, there's more than two, but this is the other one I want to draw attention now. The other paradox is that I think we don't sufficiently realize that the elicitation and intensification of sexual desire isn't disconnected from other desires. And this is a great insight of the longer ascetical tradition, the tradition that looks at the discipline of the body, whether it's in Christianity or in ancient philosophy or non-Christian religions. The idea that we have a life in which we're embodied, but uh, we are also psychically, spiritually tending towards certain goals, whichever goals we've decided upon. And our sexual longing is certainly a very, very deep and profound element in this. If you're a Freudian, it's the deepest. But even if we grant that, other longings are associated and attendant. And the question is, how do we, as it were, frame the relationship between those different desires? How do we understand our lives as given over to sorting those desires? If you join a religious community within Christianity, there is one question that's asked of you as you join, and it's quid pettis, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What is your life for? And I'm trying to get this question back into the heart of our spiritual and theological reflection, whether or not you believe in God. Obviously, if you believe in God, then the answer is clear enough. What you ultimately seek is God, as it were, to return to the deepest source of your being, that which gave you life. So would you define asceticism as discipline of the body? Discipline the body Maybe. and the mind, because, mm-hmm. um, and that shouldn't be understood as a quote, negative attitude to the body. That's a misunderstanding of our postmodern culture. Let's just flip here for a moment over to sport 
and dieting. All right. Mm. In our contemporary culture, we have no worry at all about thinking about discipline in relation to these two areas. It's clear that you, you can't be the best 100 yards sprinter in the world unless your life is um, disciplined in various very important ways, which are both physical and psychic. And that doesn't trouble us. But it does trouble us <laughs> if we suggest that, as Paul the Apostle suggests, that, you know, our life is actually a life of athletic style uh, choices of discipline, depending on what we're aiming for. Dieting, of course, is a more f- problematic area because it's an area in which things go very badly wrong um, when people become obsessed with loss of weight. And we see there immediately the dangers that asceticism can get into when it's disordered, as it were. But we also know that if we want to lead longer and healthier lives, making choices about food and drink is very important. And we know more and more about this now, actually. It's an extremely interesting area of medical development. Yeah, we maybe have a stronger sense in that area than in the area of sexual desire, that there has to be some balance between gratification. Absolutely. I mean, and and that's another paradox, isn't it? I mean, it's a side of of the paradoxes I already spelled out. It's a kind of manifestation of the first one, that there are some areas in which we, as a culture, a secularized culture, seem to understand that not having everything we want (laughs) all the time, even if we have the money and, and opportunity to have it, is a good and some other areas in which we don't seem to be able to understand that for whatever reasons. This is Life and Faith, and Professor Sarah Coakley is talking about food, sex, money and desire, and also God. Any talk of sexual desire and religion raises the spectre of the church's reputation in this area for repression and abuse. Sarah Coakley says this history is complicated, though also that she's certainly not letting anybody off the hook. I think it's a problem wherever power is not well managed or understood and power and its relationship to sexuality is not well managed or understood. Hence my interest in the sorting of and negotiation of desires. But if we, if we suddenly now go back right to the very beginning, the situation with Jesus first and then the earliest Christians is, I think, really fascinating and very complicated. It's certainly not the case that uh, Jesus, insofar as we can reconstruct his teaching from the Gospels through prurient means, that Jesus had a prurient or hostile approach to sexual life. He himself, of course, rather unexpectedly for a Jew, was not married. Um, And in his teaching, he does say there are some who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. So he, he signals that there are some who are gifted, as it were, to remain single for wholehearted commitment to God. This is the true celibate calling. And if you think about what he had to say about sex, it's not a great deal, actually. And it's interesting that it's both very, very demanding and very, very compassionate. So it's mm. another paradox. You know, he says in Mark, marriage is for one person, you know, and you become one. And no one should then, if, if God has joined you together, let no man put you asunder. So we have a Jesus who is compassionate to the woman caught in adultery, compassionate to the 
the woman of Samaria in the Gospel of John, and compassionate to Mary Magdalene, and, and so on and so forth. He has much more to say about money than he has to say about sex. This is really interesting. And when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is really important. This is desire. This is desire, right. It's at the heart of his teaching. He doesn't use the word eros. Um, he's more interested in charity, but clearly that's what it's about. So I don't see earliest Christianity as inherently anti-body. It's pro-body in the sense that the idea is that your body is to be hallowed and transformed in Christ into what it was always intended to be. Nonetheless, mm. there is very early in Christianity a very strong ascetic tendency in some groups, which could become quite sort of self-punitive um, at times. But again, I want to say that negative versus positive attitudes to the body are that's a bit too um, strong a disjunction without looking at the textual and ethical details involved. Because often, usually, in Christian asceticism, it's not that the body is despised, it's that it is being hallowed. Well, can I ask you to say a few things then about what healthy ascetic practice can look like, whether that's in relation to sexual desire or other desires? Well, I don't think any of this can be adjudicated without a life that is within Christianity at any rate, devoted to a form of attention in prayer that is capable of holding up the self before God for examination, for penitent examination. So Christianity has always been tempted just to sort of set out rules for getting this right. <laughs> and there are lots of very good guidelines for how to lead a balanced life. They're not all the same. Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century had a very interesting insight that if we don't get our eating practices right, balanced, moderate, we're unlikely to be able to get other aspects of our desiring life right. So he's, mm. he's interesting because he, he doesn't go straight for sex as the main problem. He sees our eating and drinking as actually the fundamental locus, which of course mm -hmm. begins with birth and then moves outwards from there, as it were. But more important than all of that is how we relate to God within Christianity in our prayer life, which is actually, as many in the Christian tradition have said, at its most basic, holding oneself before God nakedly, as it were. That's a phrase often used, for instance, in the cloud of unknowing in the 14th century. It's naked longing for God, um, without pretension, um, without our clothes on. <laughs> and... Uh, it's in practices of prayer, which vary greatly depending on the attrait and personal tendency of the person. It doesn't really matter how you pray as long as you do it. But it's in these practices of prayer that we come to be aware of the disorder in our desires and are called to penitence about reordering them, always in the light of the primary desire for God, which is implanted in us according to classic Christian teaching. I want to ask you specifically about celibacy, um, firstly about kind of the secular versions of this and then about what Christian celibacy involves. 
Because it is kind of coming up in maybe unexpected ways in secular discourse. On the one hand, you have kind of voluntary celibacy and this idea of kind of relationship hygiene and people going, actually, I want to step back from sexual activity and sexual relationships, relationship minimalism, these kinds of things. We've been discussing this a little bit on the podcast recently. And on the other hand, you have involuntary celibacy, the rise of the incel and most notoriously with these mass shootings committed by young men who say they can't get a romantic or sexual partner and they take that out on women or girls through violence. What are your thoughts on kind of what's going on there, what celibacy currently means in a secular context? Well, clearly celibacy doesn't have a univocal meaning at the moment, just as you've just described, and it's undergoing various definitional changes. Because traditionally, celibacy has meant a intentional choice on the part of someone committed to a life of ascetic uh, separation from, from sexual activity and family for a higher purpose. That's been its traditional meaning. Now it's becoming almost a, a hostile or negative term, either because it's used against such people who are thought to be fakes, or it's applied to people who find themselves um, not able, for whatever reasons, to have satisfying sexual relationships. And then so they are either angry about this and call themselves celibate, which I think is actually rather misleading because in their case it's not what they wanted it's not what they desire or interestingly you have this other case of people who do make a temporary decision to withdraw from physical relationships um i think to sort out what their desires are because they feel they've been drawn by the culture into um sort of serial relationships of various sorts which have not been satisfying for them so they need to step out to figure out how to go forward so i think we're really in a maelstrom of cultural um, confusion and anxiety about this topic but I, this is where i think some ancient wisdoms about celibacy and indeed chastity which is not technically the same thing <laughs> um, because chastity can apply to to people who are sexually active, but within a vowed relationship. So the question really is, what's it for, right? What's the good of celibacy? And there were lots of discussions about this in, in early Christianity, lots of interesting discussions that were influenced by Platonic thinking. Um, if you think about the fascinating text in Plato called the Symposium in which uh, Socrates and his friends ask about what the meaning of eros is, what is what is longing, what's it for? How can it be rightly directed to the form of beauty? Um, so there's, there's a historic platonic context of discussion about this. And then there's a context of Christian discussion in the earliest centuries of Christianity, which in part draws on celibate traditions within Judaism um, at the time of Jesus. And these get stirred together. So the Platonic Jewish and Christian elements take on a, a fascinating moment of discussion, especially moving up to the period when Christian monasticism started in the late third century. 
Many people saw celibacy in those days as a way of a sort of radical political act that stepped away from the presumptions of a culture that building up money and wealth and family was what life was about, status and class associated with reproduction. And so many of the really serious arguments in favor of celibacy in early Christianity are about a world which dissociates itself from the hierarchy of class and caste, and for women, from the subjections of women to a subordinate role within marriage, which they wish to avoid. So it had multiple meanings then, which we've forgotten, which are, I think, very interesting and radical to reconsider. So are there particular things about the Christian idea of celibacy or understanding of celibacy that it gets right about the human condition and that we maybe particularly need to hear or rediscover? I do think that, yes, because the fundamental presumption of Christian celibacy in a, a monastic context, a religious context, is that one is paying complete attention to the idea that our fundamental desire is for God and that some people um, have the vocation and the gift to make that so much a commitment of their lives that they don't wish to be entangled in marriage and child-rearing and the accumulation of wealth and goods. That's the fundamental idea. But, of course, by extension... Christian asceticism also looked at how married people could participate in that same sensibility, all right, by making different priorities than the world around them for how they used their money, how they brought up their children, how they related to political power, and so forth and so on. So it's a mistake, it's a terrible mistake to think that the disjunction here is between being celibate and being married. That's not the disjunction. The disjunction is between those who care about sorting their desires before God and those who don't care about it or are getting it wrong. And that's, I think, a big cultural jump because now we just think of celibacy as not having sex. We don't think of it as making a particular kind of choice of how to order your desires. Sarah Coakley has raised some very big ideas across this episode. Where do we go from here? She says these thoughts are just the beginnings of an important conversation and she counsels humility. Don't presume that rethinking celibacy involves either an appeal to an outdated conservatism (laughs) or, on the other hand, uh, a kind of um, letting it all hang out uh, such that, you know, celibacy is seen as a failure in that uh, simply inculcates violence. The very fact that we can be living in times where this is so problematic in different directions suggests to me that this is a topic we need to think about spiritually, philosophically, culturally, theologically, and psychoanalytically as well, of course. And I don't think we've got the answers yet. This has been Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore has been speaking with Professor Sarah Coakley. Her short but profound book about these things is called The New Asceticism, Sexuality, Gender, and the Quest for God. 
Do share this episode with someone you know who's interested in these topics. And we'd also love it if you'd fill out our survey to let us know how to improve life and faith for 2022. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And this is your final chance to tell us your thoughts. Next week. And they said, but everyone's got somewhere to go on Christmas Day. They all spend time with their families. I said, no, 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 there are people that aren't. And so one of the old ladies gave me a plate of sandwiches and people started turning up and that's really how it happened.